But I want to go to Psalm 1 first. Psalm 1. And I want to preach today a Father's Day message that uh, from, not just from Psalm 1, but I want to bring the impact of Psalm 1 onto our fathers. And uh, let's, if you would, in your Bibles, turn to Psalm 1 and we'll read the psalm. And then uh, just remember that this application of Psalm 1, I want, to, I want it to bear, to bear down on us fathers. Let's read God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law... He meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And so this morning when you read this psalm, you recognize that there are two paths. One is, maybe I should phrase it this way, there are two messages. Then there are two kinds of people. And then there are two outcomes. So the first is the message or the counsel of the ungodly, which is the whole of the world system that is speaking forth its message. It's the counsel of the ungodly. It finds its energy from Satan. It finds its instigation, its initiation from from the enemy of all things godly. That is that first message, the counsel of the ungodly. The other side of the coin or the other message that we have in this world is the law of the Lord. You can boil it down to these two, these two things in all of the world. One, it, things are not neutral. You know, even the study of science, your science book is on the side of the law of the Lord as long as it's true to science, you know. But what happens when that science curriculum begins to spout off things like Darwinism, then you know that it's the counsel of the ungodly because it does not agree with the law of the Lord. So there's just those two distinct messages that boils down to the counsel of the ungodly and the law of the Lord. And then there are the two groups of people. One walks in the counsel of the ungodly. He may simply be exercising, he's living out what people tell him to do. He may be quite innocent, not innocent, but quite ignorant. 
We should say he's not innocent, but he's maybe ignorant of what he is following. He is one who walks in the counsel of the ungodly. And that is what we were seeing a lot of in the past two days, where someone may not actually be a homosexual, but the culture is teaching everyone to affirm the homosexual. And so when someone is endeavoring to make a the gay community feel good about themselves, that is walking in the counsel of the ungodly. That's, they may not be that themselves, but they are affirming or else endeavoring to uh, give them solace and comfort in the opposition that comes from where? None other than the law of the Lord. As we were preaching the law of the Lord, there were those who there were those who were saying they were those who were giving comfort to the ungodly in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You see the mixed up mess that we're we're in people who were giving comfort and affirmation to the ungodly in the name of Jesus whereas the law of the Lord doesn't do that the law of the Lord doesn't give comfort to the sinner it convicts But it drives him to his knees in repentance and weeping over his sin. And there he finds the grace of our God. So there, is, there are those who walk. And if you are walking in the counsel of the ungodly, you will soon find yourself in the path of sinners. You cannot stop that. If you, if you imbibe and receive the counsel of the ungodly and you partake and you eat of that, you will soon find yourself in the congregation of sinners and those who are walking out and practicing the advice of this counsel who say you should do it this way or that way, they will soon find themselves in a congregation of sinners, or in the path of sinners. They're walking where sinners walk. When you partake of the counsel of the ungodly. And you will not long stay there because sin will harden your heart. There's a progression in verse 1. A very real progression. When you walk for any length of time in the path of sinners and you bless them and partake with them and you are soon to walk past the preacher who stands beside the path of sinners, who is proclaiming the law of the Lord, you will soon 
be scorning. You will soon be sitting in the seat of the scornful. You see, it's not neutral ground where, you're, where the sinner is. He will soon be seating, sitting in the seat of the scornful, the last line of verse 1, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Where the, you have to have something to scorn to be scornful. Something is coming at you and you're scornful of that. That's the counsel of the law. That's the counsel of the law of the Lord. When that law of the Lord comes at you, and this is the danger of not believing in the law of the Lord, not following, not embracing, not welcoming it, is that you are not in a neutral place. The more that you linger in the counsel of the ungodly, the more you will be hardened against the law of the Lord. It's, it's not possible for the sinner to stop that downward, that downward slide. When you are sitting under the law of the Lord and disregarding and disregarding and to the point of scorn, you know, how are you going to be saved like that? You can't be saved by scorning the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is meant to bring you to him. It is meant to draw you to Christ so that you would humble yourself and admit your need for him. Put your trust in him and then you will be ready for the grace of God. And by the, praise God, there is great grace in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord was being, you know, yesterday I, I spoke out of John 3. And Jesus said, the condemnation is that light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Whenever the, the, the word of God is proclaimed, whenever the gospel is spoken out, light is coming. Light has shed abroad, but the condemnation is that men rather would have darkness than light because that light illuminates their wicked deeds. But whenever the law of the Lord is proclaimed, there is great grace there because it is God's goodness that his law be revealed, that his will be expounded, that his law be spoken. And so he shall be like a tree, verse 3. The man, blessed is the man, happy is the man, prosperous is the man who doesn't do these things, those negative things of walking, standing, and sitting, but rather the positive things of delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating therein. Day and night. You know, I had to think about this verse doesn't say how he delights in the law of the Lord. You know, I, I just challenge myself. I challenge each of us here as believers. How do we delight in the law of the Lord? Do we delight in intellectually knowing and understanding it? 
I hope we do. I hope we delight in knowing the law of the Lord. But do we also delight in its application to ourselves? Or do we just delight in its application to the other person? But here it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord in all of its meanings. He delights in knowing it. He delights in applying it. He delights in even proclaiming it. It doesn't specify how he delights in it. He delights in the law of the Lord and in all of its ways that he could delight therein. Oh, taste and see. How do you relate to tasting and seeing a, a recipe that is so good, so wonderful, that you tell your, your friends that you must try this? This steakhouse at such and such a place has the best steak. You see, if you delight in something, you automatically share it. You automatically become an ambassador for it. You automatically begin to proclaim its, its, the, its distinctives, its individual traits that you like so well. He delights in the law of the Lord and he delights in his proclamation. He delights in its application. He delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates therein day and night. You know, one of the young brothers who went with us yesterday, he, he said, you know, one of his takeaways is that he needs to just spend more time in the Word of God. So that when he gets in a conversation with someone who may be sincere, maybe not, maybe has a question to try to, you know, stall us or whatever, you know, his takeaway was if, if he would just, so that it comes out in that moment of need, store it away like your canned goods for that winter season. When you don't have the word right in front of you. Now you draw on what you've stored away. And you meditate and you store it away. You meditate and it put it away. You can it. And then you bring it out at a moment when you need it. When you don't have it fresh, so to speak. You bring it out and you share it. And it's stored away. And that was his perspective. I thought, that's so good. Because when you're out there on the front line, you can't cook. You can't cook a hot meal out there. That's why our soldiers carry MREs, meals that are ready to eat. You can't cook it fresh. You've got to have it somewhere you can get a hold of it. And that was his perspective. And he delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates therein again and again and again. He shall be this way and his blessing is like a tree. Contrast this tree with the shaft of verse 4. Well, brothers, 
Let's make this application to fatherhood. How can we be the fathers that we ought to be if we don't know the law of the Lord? If we don't know the law of the Lord, if you are unwilling to apply the scriptures or the principles of God's word as a father, if you are, ta- if you are receiving the counsel of the ungodly as a father, you will be, the outcome is going to be like the chaff. And remember, we're talking about our children here. We're talking about our families, the success of our, those we have fathered. Being a father is much more than begetting sons and daughters. He shall be like a tree. You know, I had to think of that verse 3. Blessed, here is the description of how he is blessed. Blessed is the man. Then you go to verse 3. How is he blessed? He is blessed as one that is planted right beside the river. He is is blessed as a man who partakes daily of the grace of God, who is continually feeding on the truth of God, who is meditating on that that river, that the glorious living water. And it comes up, and as a tree, as a father, he is partaking of of this grace of God's law, and it regulates him in such a way that that he bears What does he bear? He bears fruit in his season. He is not like the fig tree, which maybe actually the fig tree wasn't that Jesus cursed, remember? He went to it and and he didn't find fruit on it. But it wasn't even the season for figs, I think, if I remember right. But he, this tree is a fruit-bearing tree in its season. You know, sometimes we, I think our fruit bearing may well be somewhat seasonal sometimes. We go through times when we are a bit barren. But when it's time to bear fruit, the man who is in the law of the Lord will bear fruit in his season. He will bear fruit. And as a father, would to God that we would, continue, we would be bearing fruit in the season of our fatherhood. That we would, we would be able to lead our sons and daughters to blessing. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever he does shall prosper. Now that is biblical prosperity. That is not, that is not um, the prosperity gospel. What we know as the prosperity. This is the true prosperity of the gospel. 
is that which delights in the law of the Lord and it bears fruit. Its principles come out of our lives. They come out of our lives as fathers. We imbibe the truth of our position as head of the house. We take our rule with, with humility and with, with a commitment to bring forth God's will in our lives, in our families. You know, if we deny our rightful place as leading out in our homes, we are not delighting in the law of the Lord. It, it is these sorts of things that the law of the Lord is regulating. The law of the Lord regulates our fatherhood. And as we embrace the laws of the Lord that relate to fatherhood, which is things like taking our place, saying what shows we watch, saying what, where we go, what time you're home, all of these, what friends you keep, It is so easy to lay those practical points aside. So easy. But if we delight in the law of the Lord, in my experience, the closer that I am to the Lord, the better my parenting. The ungodly are not so. They are like the shaft which the wind drives away. Now we come to the outcome where there's an outcome. The wind drives away the shaft. The wind drives away the ungodly. Verse 5, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. What that means is that they will fall at the judgment. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be at the judgment. It means that they're going to fall when they, get, when they stand before. When they come before the judgment, they're going to fall. That there's going to be a pronouncement of doom on the ungodly. Because they have not delighted in the law of the Lord, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There will be a separation one day, and it's called the judgment. There will be a separation of the righteous and the sinners. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Brothers and sisters, as we think about, brothers especially, as we think about fatherhood, there are, there are outcomes for the way, we, the way we parent. There are outcomes. I just want to challenge us with a few glimpses at a few characters out of the Old Testament. As we leave Psalm 1, and just remember that delighting in the law of the Lord has practical implications for fatherhood. Receiving the counsel of the ungodly has practical implication for fatherhood. You know, there's a council out there today that's kind of called... It's, it's, it's misnamed, but it's, it's the idea that you should not spank your children. What does the scripture say? If you spare the rod, you ruin the child. It's not if you apply the rod, you ruin the child, which is the counsel of the ungodly. 
You see, it's these practical ways that I'm speaking about. If we delight in the law of the Lord and they address those particulars, that's how we know whether we delight in the law of the Lord as we apply these particulars. But let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. And I want to quickly move through a few Old Testament illustrations, we might say biblical examples, not all of them very good. A few biblical examples of fatherhood. But listen to this in, Gen- in Genesis chapter 6 in verse 8 and 9. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the backdrop of that is that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You know, sometimes we make excuses as fathers. Well, times weren't like they are now. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. The wickedness of Noah's day was profound. It was so profoundly wicked that God was sorry he made man. That he regretted. The wickedness was so vast and so overwhelming and completely saturated. The population was so saturated that there were only eight souls eventually saved out of it. Eight souls out of Many, many, many thousands, maybe even millions. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Unless you think that Noah found grace because of his works, God made sure this verse was put in here. Noah found God's unmerited favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let's go to verse 18. Just We have to move. I have, I have a number of chapter, uh, characters here. So God said to Noah in verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them or because of them. Behold, I will destroy them with them with the earth. And then verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall go into the ark, you, and who else? Your sons. Your wife and your sons' wives with you. Notice that it was Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But his family was vastly affected by what Noah found with God. Verse 22, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And then you go over here, and so God had said this, it was coming. Then we go over here to verse 11. I just want to show you 7-11. 7-11 was Noah's 9-11. 7-11. It was 9-11 for the world, but it was 7-11 for Noah. Noah, in, in uh, chapter 7 and verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 600th year, 
On the 17th day of the second month of the 600th year, on that day, <laughs> you see how specific this is? On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. There is a day coming, just like Noah. On that day, what you believe as a father is going to impact your family. What your family is going to encounter on that day is so profoundly important on how you are relating as a father. You see, I, I was just so struck by 7-Eleven. On that day, the Bible makes it so clear that on this day, this awesome day when the heavens were opened and the fountains of the great deep were broken up, that the earth became overwhelmed with water, with the judgment of God. It's on that day that that family was practically saved. On that day. Not any other day. It was here that that brought forth fruit. And it was actually practically redemption. You know, there's a judgment day coming for us and our families. Are we going to stand like Noah did in the judgment? The ungodly will fall at the judgment. But here the judgment came on the 600th year in the second month on the 17th day. Okay, let's go back to Genesis 21. That was Noah. And we know that Noah was doing some things that, were not, that are not stated in Genesis. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter. He was proclaiming, he was speaking out the things about God. Now, here in Genesis 21, we are speaking about Abraham. And... I think I wrote the wrong reference down. Now I'm in Exodus. Genesis 21, verse 11. We are breaking in here for time's sake and the issue of the bondwoman and her son, Hagar and Ishmael. Genesis 21, 11, and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. It was a very displeasing thing. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Okay, if you go back to chapter 22, and let, me, let me just say that as a father, Abraham was very displeased that he had to put his bond, the bondwoman's son out. It was his son, remember. It was not Sarah's son, but it was his son. And I've never really realized that chapter 21 comes before chapter 22. Okay? What I mean by that is that chapter 21 is Abraham putting out Ishmael. Chapter 22 is Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Don't you think they're related? Don't you think God was, was blessing Abraham with a in a sense, with a lesson that you have to surrender your children to me. You have to submit to what I want. 
Genesis 22, 1-3 says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Remember how displeased Abraham was in chapter 21. Here's his beloved son. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Notice Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. He went to the place where God told him. I'm telling you. Here was a man who delighted in the law of the Lord. God told him, he said, yes. What we were saying yesterday and the day before that God said, basically they were saying, who cares? Who cares? Here, Abraham didn't mess around. He rose early and he took off. He went And notice what he says in verse 12 of 22. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You know who else knew that Abraham feared God? Isaac. Isaac knew that Abraham, his father, feared God. I, I wonder sometimes how well I do with this. Do my sons know that I fear God? Do your sons and daughters know that you fear God? How do they know that you fear God? By your adherence to the law of God. That's how they know that you fear God. Because when he speaks, you move. That's how we know. That's how we measure our devotion to God. When he speaks, we move. Let's quickly go back to chapter 13 of Genesis. So we have Noah and Abraham. We have these stalwarts of the faith that make the hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. But listen, now we have another example of biblical fatherhood, but it's, it's a narrative that it's not, it's biblical in a different way. It simply means that it, the story is told in the Bible. But it's a different kind of fatherhood. We are speaking of Lot. Let's look briefly at Lot. Notice what was going on with Lot, and he had children as well. Remember Lot had children. But in Lot, in Genesis 13, in verse 10, we read this way. And we know, here the backdrop, for the sake of time, the backdrop was the conflict between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. The the, the country just wasn't big enough for these two big sheep farmers. They, They had thousands and thousands of sheep, goats, and camels, and the land just wasn't big enough. And Abraham said... We have got to separate. If you want to go left, I will go right. If you want to go right, I will go left. Another example of Abraham loving the law of the Lord. To just 
Be humble. Let, let him have whatever he wants. I'll take what's left over. And verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Oh, that's great. I mean, we would choose well-watered land as well. We would make practical decisions with the wisdom that God gave us. The stickler is that there was a city close by. And that city was so profoundly wicked that, Abraham, that Lot just disregarded the implications of moving close to the city. Before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, this is, it was well watered before brimstone filled the place up. It was well watered then. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself, remember he chose for himself, all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of, the, of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Well, Abraham was blessed by God. And we have that promise, if you read through the end of the chapter, how Abraham was to lift his eyes and just look around. It's going to be yours. It's going to be all yours. But let's go to chapter 14 here. And here we have Lot receiving. We have Lot receiving the same the same problems as the wicked. Sodom was overcome by the kings of, uh, yeah, they're, they're these kings that were, that came against them. They made war. And Sodom was overcome. And they carried off all the goods in verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now how rich was Sodom? Now how worthwhile was it living there? When all the goods were carried off, they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods and departed. And we know the story. Abraham takes off after him, brings him back, rescues Lot, and brings him back. You have a picture here of Lot receiving the recompense of the wicked. Doesn't mean that he was necessarily wicked in the same city, but Lot was carried off and his family with those with whom he was dwelling. Now, while, I, while we're considering Lot, though, I wanted to say, though, that in 2 Peter 2, verses 5 through 9, it refers to Lot. Peter did us a, a, a big favor there. He gave us the insight that Lot actually was a righteous man, but that he vexed his soul. That means he troubled his soul by his 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 close association with the wicked. 
But he was righteous. And if, if Peter wasn't, wouldn't give us that insight, we would not know about Lot. Because we just don't see it here hardly at all, except there's one clue that I found in relation to that. But in Genesis 19, in verse 9, you remember the story where the two angels came, and it was this depraved bunch of people in the city of Sodom, and they uh, entered into Lot's house. And in verse 9, Lot was outside telling them, this is not right what you're doing. And they said this, stand back. Then they said, this one came here, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Think about that. All right, there's your clue. You see, there's your clue that Lot was righteous in that he came in there and the people of the city said, this guy is a stranger among us, but he has been judging us. He has been acting like a judge here. We are going to get serious with him. He keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door, but the men reached out, the two angels, and, and drew him in. You know, this whole thing about the men of Sodom saying, you are acting like a judge among you. Some of us are very familiar with that. We were constantly barraged with, you are acting like a judge among us. They were saying, you judge us. No, we said the word of God judges you. We are proclaiming the law of the Lord. That is what is judging you. Light has shone, and you hate the light more than the darkness. This is my clue that in the Old Testament that Lot actually was a righteous man. And he was speaking against, I think, I think he was as you know, he was known as one who acted as a judge. Well, let's look. Genesis 19 and verse 12 and following, we have this account of these two men saying, Hey, we are here. We're revealing our mission to you. We're fixing to wipe this place clean. Do you have anybody around here? That is yours. Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters? And whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. You see, again, here was Lot. The, the message of destruction came to Lot. The message of destruction of, of the law of the Lord came to the head of the family. Fathers, you're called to bring them out. To bring them out from among them. Bring your children out of Sodom. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and listened. Lot had ruined his influence. Lot ruined his influence. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place for the Lord's going to destroy this city. But his, to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. That's what the scripture says. You know why? Because he 
was living among them. He was there in Sodom. He had chose Sodom, remember. He had chose his pocketbook over the influence of Sodom, the detrimental influence of Sodom to his family. He chose his wallet. So badly was he entangled in the wicked affairs of the city, maybe not necessarily partaking of its individual wickedness, but he was so badly entangled. He had his kids there. His son-in-laws were getting, were, they had married his daughters, and so he has at least four daughters. Two of them were already married to sons-in-law. I'm just saying the minimum of, of a plural is two. He had a plural daughters married. He had two daughters that went with him. And so while, so when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry. There's urgency here saying, arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And in verse 16, there's another clue to the complete and utter lack of discernment that Lot had. How vexed and how tormented his soul was, partially because his kids were now in, in, in Sodom and they refused to leave. He had so compromised his influence as a father to the point that he couldn't even influence his, his, sons, his sons-in-laws and his daughters to leave the destruction that was about to rain down. And while he lingered, it says, Notice that it influenced him to stay. And while he lingered, and partially, he is partially to blame for the loss of his wife. Because he may be wholly to blame. Because he had first moved there. But now while he was lingering, and well, oh Lord, what should I do? What should I do? My sons and my sons-in-laws and my daughters will not come with me. And while he lingered. The men took hold, and here Lot found grace in the eyes of the Lord. While he lingered, the men took hold of him, his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. You know, Lot was a righteous man, but he entered, he entered glory with his clothes cinched. Everything gone. Lost because of the choices that he made. Lot chose the rich plains of Sodom. Fathers, fathers realize what is, where are your values? Where are your priorities? Is it the law of the Lord and you're delighting and meditating on them day and night? Or is it your wallet? You're literally willing to sacrifice your kids for your wallet. While he lingered, you see the grace of God? Came and grabbed a hold of him and took him out of there. Took him out of there. You know, this is a picture of he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Getting a hold of him. Dragging him out of there. But listen, there's a real sad commentary. 
Lot and his wife, his wife perished. Lot had two daughters that were with him. He got them out of Sodom. But he didn't get Sodom out of his daughters. He got his daughters out of Sodom, but he did not get Sodom out of his daughters. Just read at the end of the chapter. Well, I want to... I want you to consider the implications of Lot's choices and how he ruined his family. He escaped so as by fire, but he lost his family. And his lineage became the enemies of the people of God, Moab and Ammon. His lineage became the enemies of his uncle and his lineage, Abraham. One last one I want to just touch briefly is Job. And Job was known as a man of perfection, not only in his community, but by God himself. Think about that. Job, what a commendation to be called perfect by Almighty God. Almighty God. And you know what, Job, I just want to remind you, I've preached this here before, but Job was his perfection was marked in Scripture. Job, book of Job, begins with how Job related as a father to his family. It also closes with an example of how Job related as a father to his family. It begins and ends. I conclude that The perfection of Job was in how he related to his family. The book of Job begins that way and ends that way. Job was counter-culture. The book of Job indicates that he gave an inheritance to his three beautiful daughters. They were so beautiful that they were more beautiful than all the the most beautiful women in, in the land. And Job gave them an inheritance among their brothers. You know, that's counterculture in that time. Women were not valued very highly. But Job did. Job loved his girls. He said, you girls are going to get a share just like my boys. Isn't that a blessing? But I want to... I want to make mention of the early parts of the book of Job where Job had this attitude that is far different from some fathers today. The brothers of these three sisters, different sisters because these these children died. Early in the book it says that the boys would invite the girls over to have a party with them. And they would gather together and feast and have a good time. And, and Job would rise up early and he would be a priest to his family. He would offer sacrifices. You know what he says? It's so important I should read it. Let me, let me read it really quickly for you. I, it's, I need to close. But Job, 
says this way. It says, So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all his children. He was a priest, and he, 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 he interceded for God, to God for his children, each one of them by name, I'm sure. For Job said, now here's what I want to get. Remember, this is a perfect man. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. What I want to say is how many times have you run into it as a father or as how many times have we run into it where the attitude is my children would never do that? That was not Job's heart. He understood the iniquity, the depravity that's inside of children, even adult children. He understood that. He, he said, there's a possibility that my sons have sinned. Rather than people coming and saying, well, I, you know, would you consider that your son may have done this? Oh, my son would never do that. Now, wait a minute. You don't have a biblical understanding of your son. Of course there's a possibility that he could have done that. Remember, do we delight in the law of the Lord or not in what he has said about our children? They need to be saved. Noah knew that his children needed a priest. They needed intervention. They needed to be prayed for. They needed to be offered sacrifices for. Because they might have sinned, you see. Maybe, just maybe they have sinned. Let's repent from this attitude that my children would never do that. Well, praise God for these examples that are recorded in Scripture for us. These things are left to us as an example. The Old Testament is given. These things are written and recorded for our admonition. And so I, I want to just challenge myself as a father today as we consider this Father's Day, year 2022. There's a 7-Eleven coming for you as a father. I believe that we will give an account for how we have related as a father to our children. I want to just bless you as we think about Noah and the impact of his choices on his family, the impact of Abraham and his family, the impact even of Lot, his choices on his family, Job and the blessing of the glorification of God in the life of Job. God was glorified by Job. I just want to close yet with, with a clarification that what I said earlier about our young men rising up, I'm not indicating necessarily that you are not serious about your faith. I'm, I am spurring you on to a greater, a greater willingness. Um, I'm not implying 
that you're not serious about your faith. I am just endeavoring to encourage you to greater heights of devotion to Christ and his cause and his law and his kingdom. Well, thank you for your kind attention and happy Father's Day.